Hello, and welcome to Let's Farmanize. I'm Shane Gerritsen. I'm Mickey Ferguson. I'm Cal Vandergrift. And today we're going to talk about COVID-19 and treatments. Some work, some don't. Stay tuned. All that and more on Let's Farmanize. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time. <laughs>
It's not killing virions. It's pretend. It's preventing them from binding phase so two. So if it's already theoretically, in the cell, if it would, if it would have already been in the cell, then what's really the point? I guess that's kind of why it's the bad news. Right. There is no point. Yeah. It doesn't work. <laughs> what a shame. It Thank is. you, Cal, for clearing that up for us. It is I, a shame. Another thing about colchicine, the best reason not to use colchicine, probably apart from the fact that its ability to decrease viral load is completely negligible, even at therapeutic doses of colchicine, release of surfactants into the lungs is decreased. Surfactants reduce alveolar tension, prevent alveolar collapse, and enable gas exchange. One of the treatments used for some cases of ARDS is actually surfactant therapy to increase concentration and efficacy of surfactants in the lungs. When do you think would be a bad time to not have any surfactants? Uh, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe when you have a very, very late stage of COVID? That's exactly right, Mickey. Thank you. I love the way you said that. <laughs> it's like it's always rising. Right. Late stage of COVID? When you're experiencing acute respiratory distress syndrome, you definitely want all the surfactants that you can get. We're seeing more cases of organ failure and also disseminated intravascular coagulation. Uh, which is a thrombotic event. And Cal, we've talked about this before, about that study in Sweden that came out about thrombotic events occurring in patients even though they were taking prophylactic antithrombotic therapy. There was like a 30% incidence rate of thrombotic events, even though these patients were already taking the Swedish form of, of heparin. Mm-hmm. Or maybe it was anoxaparin. The Swedish form of anoxaparin. I forget the name of it. But it's probably called anoxaparin. It wasn't. I think it really? was parandaparin or some, something like that. Pandaparin? Pa- pandaparin. Huh. I thought drug names were fairly universal. That's interesting. I would have never thought that. Well, um, in the UK, they call Tylenol paracetamol. And that's yeah. their generic name for it, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Is it? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Acetaminophen paracetamol. Never known that. I would say that wrong. I, I'm, I, I am known to say drug names wrong, but I yeah. would say that one wrong pretty frequently. Paracetamol. 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 Kind of hard to mess that one up, actually. Okay. (laughs) So guess what toxic doses of colchicine can cause? Is the answer tissue damage? That's one of the answers. Yes, it can cause tissue damage. But more importantly, and more dangerously right now, can cause thrombotic events, like the aforementioned DIC, or disseminated intravascular coagulation. Colchicine also interacts with a lot of antivirals which increase levels of colchicine in the blood. As we know, we've talked about antivirals, not a lot, but what we've mentioned of antivirals is that a lot of them behave in conjunction with each other, boosting the other's efficacy by preventing the metabolism, the enzymatic degradation, like darunavir and ritonavir. Lopinavir and ritonavir is pretty big right now for COVID treatment. Yeah, yeah. that too. But the, one, of the, one of the trademarks of these kinds of drugs is that one will boost the other by basically clogging the enzymes that would otherwise be clearing it out. So one thing we can agree on is that colchicine is terrible. Yeah, not, not a good option. Good. For COVID-19, I'm sure it's great for gout and lupus flare-ups, but it is not... As hydroxychloroquine is for lupus. Right. Yeah. yeah. I wonder how that... Uh, never I'd still want to take something else for RA if I it's was... It's really interesting how we think about hydroxychloroquine being like an immunosuppressant and how we thought of it as a treatment for COVID. And I guess it didn't just jump out at us, but like if you're suppressing the immune system, then that's what like... Lupus and RA are overactive immune systems. If you suppress that a lot, it just doesn't seem very, very good for someone who has an unknown virus that's attacking them. Like it's a shame that we didn't see that sooner because I know a lot of people. Like how many, how many pharmacies just got sold out of hydroxychloroquine? Yeah, yeah. Because people were hoarding that. 
I think I think suppressing the immune system is a way to go about it, but for me, hydroxychloroquine has always been an anti-parasitic. Like you yeah, use from, it to, from you malaria. Use it to kill malaria. Mm-hmm. Um, besides those two uses, I can think of. But in the U.S., it's largely used for RA and lupus. Like, but not too many then, cases of malaria are. In the there US are better states. drugs for RA. They might be more expensive. Sure, but they're better. I will say in our in my IPBE rotation, we just had to move hydroxychloroquine from the regular shelves to the fast mover section. For those who for, for those of you who don't know, those are the drugs that are moving the quickest. Now hydroxychloroquine is in there, and I don't even think it's for COVID. I think it's just people with lupus and RA. Yeah, I'm the jerk that takes the fast movers and puts them back on the shelf because I like to be able to find them when I need them instead of being like, where's like let's say I'm lotapine ten milligram. What'd you call it? Now I say butylbidol, but you just called it. Amlodipine. Try to get my amlodipines. Yeah, what do you guys call it? Amlodipine. Amlodipine basilate. <laughs> I'm sorry. I must have grown up in Johnston County oh where God. we got amlodipine and we got bonazepril. And Famotidine. And Oh, my. We are sold out of Famotidine, I tell you oh what. Gosh. I tell you what. Okay, so let's talk about something else. <laughs> Great hosting right there. <laughs> Let's change the subject. Okay. But first, a word from our sponsor. So let's talk about dexamethasone. This one made headlines recently, and with, with good reason. Can anybody tell me besides uh, Mickey what dexamethasone is? It's a corticosteroid chain. Right. That much I do know. Right. No offense, Mickey. You just answered too many questions in a good way. Everything about everything. So it's like, what's the uh, what's the history of of dexamethasone? When was it invented? Well, it all started when the Fire Nation attacked. It's like when we bring Mickey on; he's like an encyclopedia when it comes to like the historical of any drug or any treatment of anything. (laughs) So dexamethasone is a steroid. It's a glucocorticoid or corticosteroid used for anything from allergies, asthma, multiple sclerosis, cerebral edema, and various kinds of inflammation as well. As we know, the end stages of COVID-19 involve what's called a cytokine storm, which is an overzealous immune response that is leading to acute respiratory distress syndrome and ultimately death. That's what's causing the mortality in patients is the ARDS. Fluid builds up in the alveoli, the lungs can't take up oxygen anymore, and the organs aren't receiving oxygenated blood, and the patient dies. ARDS is a really large-scale immune response involving multiple facets of immune control, including neutrophils, macrophages, dendritic cells, not to mention interleukins and cytokines. Dexamethasone is a really potent and long-acting corticosteroid. I think it's a little bit more than 20 times more potent than endogenous cortisol, and it's about five times more potent than prednisone. With the increased duration of action, upwards of 30 hours, it also comes with much more hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis suppression, almost three days after a single dose of six milligrams. Dexamethasone exerts inhibitory effects at several points along the inflammatory cascade and is able to modulate acute respiratory distress at multiple stages. One of the inhibitory effects is the switching off of genes that would otherwise be transcription pro-inflammatory cytokines. It also inhibits several interleukins along the chain of inflammation. University of Oxford has been performing a study on dexamethasone in treatment of COVID-19-related ARDS to determine 28-day mortality and saw a decrease in deaths by about a third in patients receiving invasive respiratory support, that is, a ventilator, and about one-fifth in patients who are receiving oxygen. 
This results to me are really promising. Patients not receiving any respiratory support, however, do not see a decrease in mortality at all. Several hospitals in Brazil are putting together a study as well on dexamethasone in treatment of COVID-19 that is scheduled to complete sometime in August. I'm sure we're all eager to see these results and learn a little bit more about treatment. I would, however, like to clarify that dexamethasone is used to treat ARDS, Acute Respiratory Distress Syndrome, the final deadly stages of COVID-19, and is absolutely useless as a preventative measure. In fact, long-term treatment of corticosteroids come with the well-known effect of suppressing the immune system and increasing risk for infections, among other issues like hyperglycemia and loss of bone density. See, I'm glad you brought up the preventative thing because I, I'm going to be a devil's advocate here because I think when, when you say that one-third of patients on ventilation and one-fifth on oxygen, it just seems like dexamethasone is already being given pretty frequently to those patients already. So I'd like to see another trial maybe of patients with COVID and with, without COVID, but they're both still taking dexamethasone, and I bet their outcomes would be pretty similar. Which I'm glad you said it's not a preventative treatment of COVID-19, because that's not what that, those statistics say to me. Absolutely. Yeah. But, but what those statistics do say to, to me is you have you know a 33% better statistic on your hands and a 20% better statistic on your hands with this drug that's readily available and somewhat cheap. So let's figure it out. Let's... Let's try to use it in these patients with ARDS and patients on oxygen. Better than hydroxychloroquine. Definitely. Better than hydroxychloroquine. I think ultimately you're right, though. A, a trial comparing ARDS patients versus COVID-19 patients. That's what you're... That's what you're yeah, yeah, I'd rather... I, I'd like to see that. But is there any distinguishing factor between... I guess this is why you would want to do that study. Is there any distinguishing factor between patients with ARDS that developed from a COVID infection that's versus ARDS from, like smoking your lungs out for 40 because years. Because that's, yeah, that's what, exactly what I'm saying, because I think those type, those the two patient populations, they both have ARDS or ARDS, whatever, mm-hmm. and they, I feel like those statistics would be pretty similar, if not almost insignificant when, when comparing the two. Okay, but regardless, you will have better outcomes than not sure, using it at all. Sure, sure, yeah, and that's why I like what Shane said, you know, it's not a preventative treatment of COVID-19, and I think that needs to be super stressed. Because yeah. people will we, latch on. We were to looking whatever. at the opposite. We were looking at hydroxychloroquine. People started taking it as a preventative treatment for COVID nineteen, which was absolutely not the case. It had no efficacy. Okay. That we know of. I see what you're saying now. Makes a lot of sense. Don't start taking dexamethasone just because. Especially not. Stats. Don't take steroids to stop. Just yeah. prophylactically for no reason. Just take steroids to get massive muscles. Just do that. Just take anabolic. Just some just some testosterone cyprinate right in the right in the veins. That'll do. I think that might, I don't even know. That might kill you. Uh, maybe if you do the whole vial. I mean, that's an intramuscular. <laughs> just, just right in the vein. No, I mean, yeah. You're you know spo- why, what gives su- it that extended you're, release? You're supposed to put it in your muscles, but if you put it in your veins, that's how you get the really big muscles before you keel over and die. I don't think that's scientifically accurate. <laughs> I think you're right, Calvin. It's almost like I'm like eh, trying it, to... I feel like it would go to your heart, and then it would probably get like caught up in the in the cell membranes in the heart. You, you would die, man. Like I said, you'd get really big muscles, and then you'd die. In the heart. Mm-hmm. His heart grew three sizes that day. Oh, my gosh. Myocardial hypertrophy. Yep. All right. The end. 
Testosterone Sipinate, an anabolic steroid used in the treatment of low testosterone levels in transgender therapy. When used illicitly, can boost athletic performance and muscle growth. Testosterone is suspended in oil and when injected into a vein, will travel to the heart and lungs, causing pulmonary microembolism and acute respiratory distress. Do not inject testosterone into a vein. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter to keep up with our episodes and content. And special thanks to Kelly Kerr for making our music.